for example, you have a two-way player who was on base four times. He had two triples. He uh, he had a double, and he scored from second. You know, that's a lot of yardage, and he's he's running at high intensity. It's not like he's jogging a lot of these. So that's a pretty solid sprint day. So your next day, you definitely want to recover that athlete. And I think what happens is a lot of people don't individualize um, based on those game loads. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear here with Jordan Oseguera and Ryan Croton. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, sport and position specialization. You might have heard in a few other podcasts and video clips that we have where we talk about kids playing multiple sports, uh, you know, as they as they grow up and how that helps develop. But now we're going to talk about what ages and, uh, you know, you should specialize to a specific position and how do you manage players who are two, two-way players um, at at all different kinds of levels. Jordan and Ryan both have um, experience at the pro level with two-way players, and we want to get into that and kind of talk about um, the difficulties and advantages of that and, uh, you know, some give you some advice that maybe help with you at, at other levels or, or where you're dealing with um, two-way players. So, Jordan, why don't you start, kind of set up, uh, give us an example of who you're, who you guys were dealing with, and, and we'll get going. Yeah, so I actually was messing with two-way players even when I was in well, coaching in college. This is just a side note, but we had a player's name was Michael Jordan. No relation whatsoever, but he would make dinner reservations under that to make sure he would get priorities. He would call in and enlist an order under Michael Jordan. But he uh, he was a closer for us as well as he would DH and occasionally play a little outfield. But um, you know that was my kind of first you know dive into using two-way players at the at the collegiate level, and then obviously in pro ball, with our background with the Angels dealing with Otani, that drafted from there was, man, I think it was Eric Rivera. Um, man, we had about two or three other ones too, right? Yeah, there, Will Holmes. Yeah, Will, Will Holmes, Holmes, Eric Rivera, yeah. and man, I think we had Jared, one other. Jared Walsh. And Jared Walsh, yeah, two-way players. And then we also tried uh, uh, Bo. We had a bunch of guys that were two-way guys for a little bit, maybe five or yep. six, and you know, a couple of them, you know, had some success. Uh, but so we've we've kind of experienced a lot when it comes down to two-way players from college all the way up through the big leagues. Cool. So what? Um, let's just focus on the big leagues now because it is interesting. Um, you know, how does that work? How does you know managing these guys and their different, you know, everything that's going on for both positions? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take a stab at it because, you know, one of the things, it's tough to, to create a schedule um, that the player, so that, that's most important, is having the conversation with the player about what works well for them. Um, sometimes you're, you're creating a, uh, a schedule for them that's like taking a, a square peg and, and fitting it in a round hole. Um, you have to first determine, is, is this player going to be a starter or a reliever? Um, because that matters. And so, you know, when you're, you're talking about a starting pitcher, um, let's just say like Otani, who's also a, a hitter, um, it's probably easiest to have a six-day schedule, a six-man rotation. And that way, you know, the athlete has enough recovery and enough training um, that he is prepared enough as a position player and he's also pre prepared to pitch 
one of the things that I think is important, you know, as a general rule, is that the day before um, the athlete would make a start, it's probably a good idea not to have an upper body lift. So you don't want to do things because they're hitting, because they're playing. Um, you don't want to exacerbate any type of aspect of lowering recovery going into a start. So that's kind of one of the simple rules is, you know, no heavy upper body lifts the night before, you know, your start. So that's something on my end that, you know, I, I had witnessed. And, you know, as a two-way player, you, you need to give the athlete enough opportunity to do sprint work. Um, but on the same token, you should be building their aerobic side because if they're playing each game and they're doing only speed work, you need to help build their stamina. So that two-way player also needs aerobic capacity conditioning um, in their training week. So those are two main things that, you know, I've seen in a starting pitcher um, that's a two-way guy. Yeah, just to touch on that also, for for the issue that, you know, Bart was kind of referencing there with Otani specifically, it's probably really important to keep him on that, you know, seven-day rotation or six-man rotation because he was coming over from Japan as well. So that's what he had been doing leading up to that point. So it would be kind of, at least I know for me, it would be hard. And for a lot of players you talk to, if they were always pitching on that, every Wednesday you pitch, and then all of a sudden it goes, now you're going to throw every fifth day as opposed to every seventh, that's going to really throw off a schedule of it there as well. So um, I know this wasn't fully the question, but do you think a lot of those players coming over from Japan, you know, that that's one of the big big things people always notice is they, they come over, they have success because they're good players, but it usually takes them a little while to adjust or there is some injury that happens in that first year adjusting to the five-man. Do you think it would be better in that sense, not just for two-way players, but a lot of those international players to kind of start out on that seven-day rotation? Uh, no doubt. No doubt. I think, you know, I just uh, wrote a research article with a few people that talk about the differences between MLB and uh, NPB, the Japanese Professional League injuries, and I think that's a huge component. We're changing the rest structure for these athletes, you know, and there are, some of these teams are coming from a place where they get one day off. So you think if you're a 2A player and you are given, you know, a league-mandated off day, well, in Major League Baseball, I think there's like two off days a month. And so it's it's a pretty big abrupt change, and you know we're, we're talking about two way athletes. They have just ma much more game loading um, than you know the typical athlete. Like for example, if you're a starting pitcher, you're you're only getting that um, sympathetic nervous system response probably once a week. You know where you, maybe the night before you get a little bit agitated, you're getting a little bit wound up that you got that game, and then that's your high stress point. But if you're a position player at the major league level, you got to be on every day. You got to handle that anxiety every day, that competitive anxiety. And, um, you know, I, I think teams would be really bright to start their athletes off in as similar a condition as possible from their previous league. And I think that can really prevent injury and poor performance. Then kind of another follow-up question I have. Maybe we're going to get to this later, so I apologize if we don't. But even starting a two-way player out as a starter on that rotation, six 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 pitchers, you know, seven-day rotation, do you think they could ever morph into a five-day rotation with the proper, you know, adaptations? They're going to happen, but there's also a point that if someone's been, you know, if someone's been, 
you know, running marathons for the last 10 years, they're not just going to become a sprinter within a matter of an off season. It's going to take some time to readjust that. Do you think that's doable in that context or do you think there's just too much happening? Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that, you know, I think about Otani that is coming down to a success is communication. You know, it, it, having that, you know, obviously at that major league level, you got a pretty sound athlete. And for the most part, they know themselves and they know what they need to do to, to be successful, you know, especially an athlete of his caliber. So having that communication and saying, hey, I'd like to go to a five-man rotation, you know, you have to communicate to me when you may be fatigued, you know, and sometimes, you know, Joe Madden, the manager, he, he has these communications with Otani to check in to see how he's feeling. And I know he just had a, a little bit of a recovery period for him because he was struggling hitting. But those kinds of communications have to go along because if the athlete and, you know, the front offices and, and the management, they're kind of offside from each other, it's probably not going to be a good transition. But like anything, you know, you probably want to go, you know, six man for a while. Maybe you go to a five man rotation, you go to a six man rotation, you alternate this individual for a little bit until they get used to it. Because like what you said, if you're going six man rotation, then bang, it's a five man rotation. They're lasting at that for the rest of the year. That might be too abrupt, you know, than, than kind of underloading and overloading the athlete based on the amount of rest days they have. You guys are mentioning communication is important, but also, you know, monitoring for strength changes, range of motion changes, those things that is possible now, um, you know, with the app to do every day if you need to, uh, would seem to be very, almost doubly important with a two-way player. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's essential. You know, that's one of the things that we may have not gone right um, early on with at least Shoei Otani. He had arm injuries, um, but we didn't have any baselines. We didn't have the equipment. And the only time that we could have actually evaluated him was after the fact of when he had his elbow issues. And, um, you know, during the monitoring process of having him come back to competition, that was available. But we, we need to be proactive, you know, and, and this is the beauty of, you know, having something that's portable and it's, it's accessible and affordable that these athletes can use. I mean, they're having double the load. Now, a player like Otani was a DH, you know, and he plays some outfield the odd time. But if you're taking a shortstop, per se, who is 12 years old, you know, and he's a star pitcher and he's also the shortstop and he's, you know, he's just going back and forth, you know, from game and he's coming in from the defensive position to pitch. Um, I think that's important to be able to tell a coach, hey, you know, my strength is down by eight pounds today you know, or, or the last fresh test I had. It's, you know, you know, either they push it until his strength comes back or they manage his pitch count, you know, and say, OK, today, you know, you had a max of 100, we're going to start you and, um, you know, let's knock that down to 70% and see how you do. You know, that's that kind of thing is is how we want to be able to adjust using the app. I want to I want to touch on that for a second because there's a lot of player monitoring systems out there. And for the most part, most big league teams are using something, even at the lower levels are using these things. And my big knock in speaking with a lot of the sports scientists for these organizations is the way they use the player monitoring system. They're designed around soccer, rugby, you know, football, um, you know, things that, that require a large amount of movement in a given context of a game. 
and they're trying to fit that model. And you said earlier, trying to put a square peg into a round hole. And I almost think that's what happens when you take that type of a monitoring system and try to apply it to a sport that in general doesn't really have that much movement going on. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if you, it, a lot of movement comparatively to other sports, if that makes sense. Um, cause I, you know, I've been talking to some, some of these organizations and they go, yeah, it's saying that, you know, infield outfield is for our workload measures like 17 workload units. And if we do infield outfield once we, we can't do anything. We should be taking BP for the next four days because it's taking all of our workload up. It's like, well, you know, you're taking a soccer model and trying to make it fit baseball workload to when it comes down to it. I think strength measures in terms of understanding, you know, what is the strength? We obviously are looking at the shoulder, but if you can measure, you know, the, the hips, the groin, the hamstrings, and you understand if muscles are fatigued as opposed to did this guy move a lot? Because, you know, if you have a player that, you know, hits two triples, it doesn't mean that he should sit the next day out from his, his training. Because really two triples is not that much work. But in the context of a baseball game, it's a lot. But when you factor in what they've done training-wise, you know, everything else that goes with it, it's really not that much. Um, so that's one thing that I want to point out also is a lot of people are trying to take these player monitoring systems for sports like rugby where they're really good or for soccer, which is really good the way they're using it in that context. But then you put it into something you're trying to, in a sense, use a hammer to put in a screw. Yeah, I think we've got a... Um you know, another podcast coming up that's kind of talk about monitoring workloads and, and why that's good, but then actually measuring strength and range of motion changes is another piece of the puzzle and an important piece that gives you some more data to use there to, to, to make, um, you know, better decisions for your athletes. So we haven't talked about uh, catchers, two-way players with catchers, and I wanted, I wanted you guys, I know there was a couple points you wanted to make there, Ryan. Yeah. You know, and just kind of looking at some of the evidence-based studies, there was a 10-year study that uh, looked at all sorts of different workload components, um, and they, they they had found that catching and pitching in the same game can increase the risk of, of arm soreness and pain. Um, and I, I do think it's a good idea that you decide for a catcher who might be your closer or those kinds of things um where you see that athlete being uh, combined in a game so for example if it's a starter i would have you know that starting pitcher just pitch i wouldn't put him into catcher at the back end of the game you know if it's a closer reliever that's got you know shorter time windows of pitching and they're they're not going to be throwing as many pitches there may be some wiggle room there because their volume is so low you know, um, and I, I've seen catchers actually successfully transition in the professional level um, in becoming major league closers. You know, they do have a great deal of arm strength, um, and it, it almost makes sense for them to, to correct, make that Correct transition. me if I'm wrong, but that's actually the position that has the highest success rate to transition into a pitcher, right? Yeah. Of all yeah. of them on the field, it's actually you have a better chance of, you know, going from catching to pitching than you do from shortstop to pitching. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, <laughs> there were some situations when, when we were coaching with the angels that we, we had to use position players. Um, 
you know, into certain roles in games, especially when we were getting smacked. Like if they couldn't, they didn't want to burn another pitcher, they took a position player and they put him into pitch. Um, you know, the, the catcher will probably hold up best in that position. But I think too, you know, at the professional level, um, when you have a two-way player that's never pitched or they might've pitched in high school, it's been like five, six years, you, you shouldn't be encouraging that athlete to throw up maximum capacity. So I've seen some games that are blowout games at the big league level. And I love what I see because a lot of these guys that go in, they're just, they're just throwing strikes. They're just putting the ball in there. They're not trying to be cute with it. They're just trying to get ground balls or fly ball outs. Um, I think what runs into trouble when you're managing a two-way player, that's probably not a catcher. It's not used to throwing that much. You know, you're putting a center fielder or a left fielder in to pitch encouraging them to throw at maximum capacity when they've got no workload basis for that is just completely destructive, in my opinion. I don't know what you think, Jordan, well, about that. I mean, shoot, to give a real-world example on it, there was a situation, I won't give names or anything like that, but they just ran out of people on the bench. So they had to put in the bullpen catcher to go pitch in like the 16th inning or something like that. <laughs> it's a minor league game, and they told him, hey, just – like, get through this inning. Like, we, we're not asking you to throw hard. We're just asking you to go up there and just throw batting practice. Like, get the ball moving. That's what we need. They had no more arms. They were out of, out of people to pitch. No one, no one else on the bench. Like, they've all situations had been done. So this guy heard, I'm going to throw the ball as hard as I can. And that's, that's, that's what he heard in his mind. And he, he ended up blown out. You know, like, he, got, he needed to get Tommy John, and that was kind of the end for him. Um, but his body, you know, he was a catcher. He'd been throwing, he'd been warming guys up for, you know, of those 16 innings, probably 12 of them, because if you're using that many arms, you're not having a starter go with the, with the restrictions of the minor leagues, he's not throwing a hundred pitches. Um, so it's just one of those situations like, Hey, do not go in there and throw the ball hard. And it's just like the little kid at Christmas, don't touch that ornament. So he's going to go touch the ornament. Same thing. Don't throw hard. He's going to go in there and try to max it out. To his credit, he hit some 94, 95s, so he was pumped. But you know, then the next day, it turns out he's got a full tear, and and that was kind of the end of it. So okay. let's oh, let's talk about um, you know these two way players and and when do you decide? Hey, I'm not going to be a two way player, and what's the advantages? I mean, is there draftability? Are 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 pro teams looking for two-way players? Is that up your status uh, as a potential draft prospect? You can jump on that first, Jordan. Well, I mean, they've put in new rules for two-way players to where to qualify as a two-way player, you have to throw X amount of innings or get X amount of at-bats. So some of the guys who were originally two-way players no longer qualify for that anymore. Um, so there is some rules in there. There's amount of players you can have on your roster that are you know, considered two-way players. So they've they've tried to mitigate those things. Whether it boosts your draft stock or not, I'm going to say no, personally. Um, because at the end of the day, a lot of the guys that are two-way players in the draft, there's only really one Shohei Otani. You know, and even Babe Ruth was a two-way player for not his whole career. He was a two-way player for a short period of time in his career. You know, and again, there's really only one Babe Ruth. Um, but people don't, pay good money for average when it comes down to it. So there is a point to where when it comes to your services, being a jack of all trades 
is really only available in you know Angie's List. Is that that the website Angie's List where you hire people to go do things that they're good at, kind of everything? I might be way off on the the, uh, the metaphor there, but people want to pay high money to people that are really good at particular tasks and skill sets, not a whole bunch of things. I mean, Angie's me, List is not a paid sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I got it right though. Yeah, that's what it's called. <laughs> I mean, for me, so just kind of going off what Jordan says, um, I look at, you know, some of these athletes, I've been in the draft room and I I really evaluated athleticism. And, you know, the thing that I like to see, you know, if you have a pitcher and he hasn't played another position, you know, you know, past elementary school. So they put on their questionnaire, you know, how long have you been pitching? And it's like, I've been pitching for 18 years, you know, just some obscene amount of time where they've done nothing but pitch or they've not played another position. Um, for me, I look at it as like, they may not have, they may have a lot of overuse uh, issues there um, in the future. And, and uh, also they may lack a little bit of athleticism, you know, than that guy who is a pitcher and a shortstop. And I think in the draft, you realize like, what is this athlete's main skill? Um, and if you draft them as a two way player, you understand, okay, yeah, they're, they're a much better pitcher than a hitter. But you know that you have the option, you know, potentially they, they have uh, a little less skill disparity where you could say, OK, if he doesn't work as a pitcher, you know, I might be able to put him as a, in a position um, at some time. There was a there was a player when I was working for the Cardinals, um, Rick Ankiel, and people might not remember him, but he had an absolute cannon uh, as a pitcher. And then he lost his ability to locate the ball. They call it the thing. Where you know just at the point of release, you you lose you know some of your proprioception and you know the ball kind of goes everywhere. But he came back as an outfielder, you know, because he had he became a major league outfielder. He he had the ability to hit and he had that athleticism um, that he brought into that team. So I think you know certain circumstances uh, teams will draft players that they know. Okay, if if there is a problem, let's say with their pitching ability we may be able to develop them into a position player. And I think it could give the player a little bit of cushioning and uh, extend their professional career. Jordan, you were saying you like pitchers who bat. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's pitching's rotational when it comes down to, you have to be able to control what your torso is doing. You have to control what your pelvis is doing. And hitting trains that, you know, there's a reason why there's a lot of good arms from position players, you know, at every level of baseball. Um, One of my favorite guys that I've ever worked with in my entire life, obviously he's no longer with us, but it was Tyler Skaggs. And me and him had numerous discussions about when he was with the Diamondbacks, that was the best his arm had ever felt. And he attributes it to taking so much batting practice because he was like, man, they let me hit the cage. He's like, I'd always just say like, hey, I need to go get a little extra work in. And he'd be down there taking swings off the tee, just, you know, passing time. And to me, that's better because, you know, he would try to hit righty. He would try to hit lefty. So he's working, you know, concentric and eccentric on those swings with a bat, having to control what his torso is doing. He's building those core strength. And then obviously in the American League, you're not really doing much batting practice. It's very rare that you're going to get any swings in. Um, but when he was coming up with the Diamondbacks, obviously after he was traded that first time, he had to start hitting. And he goes, man, I, it just, it, it, we were talking kinematic sequence one day. And he goes, I think that's why I had a better kinematic sequence when I pitched in the National League 
than when I was in the American League. Um, and the same goes with the guys that I've had in you know coaching in college. Is if they wanted to take BP and we had the time, like we'd throw to them, we'd make sure they got what they needed to done. We programmed in bat swings with them just to train what their core needed to do because it's you know cross specificity, I guess would be a term. Cross training the same movement to where. Now they're working on the movements that they're going to be doing on the mound with a different implement to keep the nervous system firing in a new way, if that makes sense. So at what age, if, if you find that you, you know, you've been going to a all through high school and, you know, or, or wherever you tell me what age and you find that one is better, you're definitely show promise in, in one position over another. At what point is it time to just focus on one, one position? I, I think college. I don't know about you, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, the sad thing is, is that most players who become a position player, they've probably pitched at one point and they've had an arm injury. I mean, that's what happened with me. You know, I pitched until I was 11 years old, and um, the doctor said, you know, you're gonna you're gonna actually fracture your arm if you keep pitching. So, you know, my focus was obviously a position player if I wanted to play. Um, you know, and the stats are like up to 70% of pitchers could experience a sidelining injury in their career, 70% of the, all the pitchers. So, you know, I, I think I, I like college, you know, if they're, if they can handle it. And this is why I'm hoping, you know, athletes out there, two-way players, pitchers, they're going to use our app because it's going to allow them to exist, you know, and, and again, you go to college and you might be able to develop both. Um, and, and I just think it gives you more game time and it, and it gives you a little bit more exposure. So the longer you can prolong playing both positions, I think it's better for your body. You know, some people just think they're, they're doing too much. You know, there's too much overuse there. They're playing position, but they're moving in so many different planes and they're not just rotating and covering a base. And then, you know, they're, they're sprinting, they're, they're striking, just like what, what Jordan said that, you know, that makes sense to me. You know, if they can get to college, you know, focus there. So here was one of the issues that we had with it was obviously around class schedules, you know, around study halls, um, practice time restrictions, things that all these colleges deal with. We couldn't get our pitchers to be able to take batting practice on a regular basis. In like mall colleges, hey, you get to take BP when we throw a shutout, but the kicker is I'm the one who has to throw the BP. So, like, you know, get in there with some, with some, don't be digging in. Uh, but, you know, we luckily threw enough shutouts, you know, shout out to those groups that we were with that we were able to take a lot of BP, but it was once a week. And for the most part, we had to find a way to program swings in because I believed in them that much that we were doing them down the, you know, down outside the bullpen, giving enough space, making sure guys are swinging, getting their work in. But for the teams that don't have those luxuries, if they, if they decide, hey, we're going to try to program our two-way guys, how would you recommend fitting that into a schedule? And I don't know if I'm – putting you on the spot with that, but obviously scheduling is huge, especially when it comes to the college age, because you only get, you know, whatever it is, 18, 20, 25 hours a week to work with those guys, probably less, but how do, how do you recommend getting that in? Yeah, I mean, just kind of what I said for the, the pro model, um, be sensitive to having heavy upper body lifts before you're scheduling a pitching outing. Um you know, one of the things, too, that could be could work real well is if the athlete is a great bat, you need their bat in the lineup. 
you might be able to rest their legs. Let's just say it's a center fielder. Your 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 um, starting center fielder is also you know in your pitching rotation. You know you could DH them and lessen the amount of time they're on their feet that they could recover before you know those games. And I think having those conversations are huge. You know it might be that the athlete just says, hey, you know I have not been feeling recovered this week. You know you might want to give him a couple times where you're DHing him to keep his his bat in the lineup so he recovers to pitch because you need him on the mound. So there is some ways in which there's a balance between the work and rest and you, you have to be creative and you have to communicate, you know, and they're a little older athlete too in college. So, you know, I wouldn't say all of them have a really solid process because I've evaluated some, a lot of two-way questionnaires. That's one thing that I did for the Angels is I evaluated all the questionnaires that came in and some of them had a really good process. Um, and you have to kind of know that as a coach, like in college, you know, is, is the rumor out that this player is going out all night on the weekends, you know, and not taking care of his body. Like there's a lot of factors that go in. So, you know, you have to be able to communicate um, how the athlete is going to prepare himself for this. Quick question on that. If you, and again, you've, you've done a lot more programming in with those two-way players. I obviously just mainly deal with the pitching side of it. If you have a player who's voicing fatigue, you know, they're tired, they're worn out, but they're doing their testing and their strength numbers are actually gaining strength. Would you cut workload in that situation because it, it's more, it sounds like maybe it's a mental fatigue or an emotional fatigue, or would you still roll that player out to go to post? Uh, how would you handle that? You know, for me, the psychology-based aspects are a lot stronger, in my opinion, the subjective information. Now, the objective information, when you communicate to them, hey, you know, your strength's in a great place. You're really strong right now. You know, it might change their mentality, but if they're not feeling good, and they're telling you that they're really exhausted. There's there's a lot of cognitive fatigue there, and uh, that's something too that I, I think coaches need to prioritize. You know, you're putting a player in a position to compete where they might not be psychologically ready is not a good thing. Um, and so, you know, sitting down with the athlete and saying, you know, and the strength coach too, so you sit down with the athlete, the strength coach, the pitching coach, you know, your hitting coach. There's all these different uh, stakeholders involved in this player and saying. You know, if you're if you're the manager of the team, you know, he's just saying, OK, we have to figure out a way in which we give this guy enough work and enough recovery because he's feeling this way. And, you know, X, Y and Z, he's neurologically in a good place. He's, he's able to produce great strength. Let's just say his range of motion doesn't change, but he's complaining that his legs feel heavy. You know, and myself as a strength coach, it's like, OK, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to cut volume and I'm going to cut intensity. You know, you have all these different options. Like, as a strength coach, you say, okay, I'm going to lower intensity, keep the volume. Okay, or I'm going to lower the volume, I'm going to keep the intensity. What I would do is really take it down a notch and lower both volume and intensity, um, at least for a little while. You know, if I have a lift, and typically this player gets through my lift at 35 minutes, well, this is going to become a 20-minute lift. And I'm going to be very specific with the exercises that I have so that the athlete, you know, comes out of training feeling good. You know, and, and a lot of the times people don't realize that the strength coach is at the basis of of, of uh, the recovery aspect of the athlete, because what we do in season is modifiable. You know, they need to play. Our, our goal is to get them to play every game and to, to play every inning. You know, we, we want them to be available um, and ready. 
And so the strength coach has to be in the mix of this conversations to, to determine what changes need to happen and not go too far away from not training the athlete, right? This is a two-way player. You know, he needs to sprint. His legs have to be in good shape. You know, if you have a lower body injury as a pitcher, that's a terrible thing, you know, that, because now they got to get that lower body strength back and they got to build up their arm again. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a whole full blown conversation and collaboration between people. Anything else, Jordan? <laughs> I, I just want to talk about sprints for a half, <laughs> half tick there. I know. I'm sorry. Um, for, for a two way player, I think sprints are even more important because if you do sprints right, you release a lot of really good hormones for recovery. Um, I think that's one thing people don't really take into account as they go, oh, well, running, you know, if you run long distance, that's supposed to be your recovery stuff. But the more and more research that's out there is high intensity sprinting, you know, just to the point of like, man, I, I think I might find out everyone's going to see what I ate for lunch here pretty soon. Like you need to run your sprints aggressively. And yeah, you might be tired for the short term, but the amount of hormones that your brain says, Hey, we have to release this for recovery, lets you bounce back so much quicker. And I think that's something that so many people just kind of glaze over. Oh, I'm tired. I shouldn't do my sprints because they're hard. So it's going to make me more fatigued. No, it might make you more fatigued for the next 40 minutes, but you're going to feel great when you wake up tomorrow. And I think that's important. I don't know if there's a perfect time when you should run your sprints, but I know they're really important to do. And I don't like it when I see people, you know, quote unquote, run sprints when it's like, oh yeah, I ran, but I'm still having a conversation with the guy next to me in the line. Like that's not sprinting. If you can have a conversation while you're sprinting, you're not getting into that position where you're releasing hormones. Yeah. And whenever I get a chance to thrash on Florida waves, it's like when you paddle out on Florida waves, like if you can have a conversation with the guy you're talking to, you're not really paddling out, you know? <laughs> Thank you yeah, for putting it in something I can relate to. <laughs> yeah. When, when, with sprinting, you know, you, you, you mentioned something before that really resonated with me. And as a coach, especially a strength coach, you got to pay attention to the game. You know, for example, you have a two way player who was on base four times. He had two triples he, uh, he had a double and he scored from second. You know, that's a lot of yardage and he's, he's running at high intensity. It's not like he's jogging a lot of these. So that's a pretty solid sprint day. So your next day, you definitely want to recover that athlete. And I think what happens is a lot of people don't individualize um, based on those game loads. But, you know, for me, I think we can simplify it a little bit. Once you get your dynamic warm-up done, it's, it's a good idea to get your sprint work in because the body's warm, Every you know, you're prepared. Um, a lot of athletes, they do their, their high-intensity sprinting before the game, and that's fine there as well. But I think when your body's ready, you should at least commit to running two 10-yard sprints as hard as possible, okay? So that 100%. You might run a 20-yard sprint at like um, – you know, 85 to 90% and a 30 yard sprint around 85 to 90% before the game. So, you know, your sprint sessions, you should try to get five minutes of sprinting a day. You know, if you do that, it's like this little dose of protection, like what you said, you know, rugby, there's so many sports. When, um, when you say five minutes, you mean five minutes, including rest periods or five minutes. F- yeah. Five, five minutes, including rest, five minutes, okay. including rest periods, you know, a day minimum. 
You know, if four, you're, if four you're, minute rest period. That's what I've been doing between well, sprints. If you're adding 30s, if you're getting them to run base distance at max capacity or high near max capacity, you need to give them a little more recovery. So that might be seven to eight minutes. But if you can commit to that, um, just like what you said, the research is showing that this high in intensity sprint um, repetitions, they can protect the hamstring from injury, you know, because you're, you're just giving it a dose every day so that when you're in the game, those tissues are ready, you know, and they're building this chronic level of conditioning. So it's, it's awesome if they can commit to it. So I tell my pitchers any day they throw the baseball, whether it's a three minute activation or they're long tossing for 15 minutes, you have to run sprints just short to the point that you're, you're feeling like you're, you're going to lose your lunch. That's my general rule of thumb. Do you think that's fair or do you think that's a little much? I, I think, you know, if it's a two-way player that does a lot of sprinting. I'm only talking pitchers. This is, okay, this is so, my selfish question right Okay, so, so straight pitching, you, you need to have some days. It's got to alternate. Some days have to be aerobic-based. It might be a little bit more of a, an extension. They're not running at, a, a, you know, 100%. It might be like 70%, but they're, you know, running over 60 yards. Um, so you need to have some aerobic days. I also recommend some days where they do conditioning where they're not on their feet because um, pitchers run a lot. And then they have to have some acceleration days and they should have some day that's, you know, involves agility uh, and resisted sprinting. You know, there are a lot of slow uh, toe sleds and things that they can do to develop strength through their sprinting. Um, but by and large, yes, sprinting is is really important for pitching, in my opinion, because you're developing a lot of horizontal force and that's what's used in pitching. I think this will be my last question for a two way player. Can you over program sprinting? In the off season, uh, in the in the off season, you know, I you, you want to have sprint sessions at least three days a week. That that's my opinion. You know, as you get to more of the preseason level, you might add a fourth day. Um, the the whole key is, you know, can you alternate the intensity? You know, we know as the distance goes longer, the the intensity of sprinting goes up. You know, because now you're getting a lot more faster uh, ground contact times. You know, so you have some days that are acceleration that might be under 15 yards um, that are, are not as taxing. You have some days that are between, you know, 15 to 30 or 20 to 30 yards. You know, you might have some days that are 40 yard sprint days. So you have to be able to scale it um, for your your position players or else you could overwhelm them. You could give them too much. All right. Well, we got into uh, a tangent there, which I think was was pretty good. We might chop up a little bit of this so so you can hear that in some other spots. But uh, definitely covered uh, two-way players here pretty pretty well. Anything you guys want to add at the end here we might have missed? No. The, the only thing I would want to revisit is, you know, I know we've been talking about our product, but I, I think it's superior in this way because these athletes are going to be throwing more. They're going to be playing more. And it just gives you the added protection when you're monitoring strength and range of motion. Um, that the athlete can have a conversation with the coaches and the coaches can follow along and make better decisions in utilizing their players. You know, my last point. It's a fair point. All right. Well, until next time, thanks for listening.